You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Let me start with Psalm 146. If you've got a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn there. to Psalm 146, serve as a little opening meditation for us. Psalm 146 says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this reminder from your word and from our earlier session that we should not be glory thieves. We should not put our trust in ourselves We should not put our trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. So instead, we pray that you would help us to lift our eyes and help us put our trust in the son of man. When his breath departed, when he was buried in the earth, his plans did not perish. His plans were established, and that is our hope for this morning. Help me as I try to explain things that have been on my mind and heart. Um, help me, give me clarity, Lord. Your word tells us where words are many, sin is not absent. Protect me. Um, and I pray that you would help each of us um, have ears to hear things that would be helpful for where our churches are. We love you. We love your church. We want to be helpful. We want to be fruitful for your kingdom. Jesus, you said, in this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Help us, Lord, be fruitful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, there's different types of workshops. You picked one where a guy wrote a 250-page dissertation on a topic. Okay? I spent four years of my life, tens of thousands of dollars, ah, Ken Bohr is here, and a lot of my hair in order to um, dig through this topic. And uh, boy, it was so helpful. Um, I should um, just kind of mention my dissertation supervisor was uh, Dr. Esther Cruikshank, my Dr. Vodder, uh, Dr. Motter. Yeah, it's with an M, right? Because Fraulein. Um, uh, and then uh, Dr. Kreider was also on my committee and Mark Coppinger of the philosophy department. And I should thank Susan Whaley Berner, who is attending this conference, who was my administrative assistant during a lot of the writing. And I thought she would be here. And she went to a different workshop instead. <laughs> so that's good. All right, here's, the, here's basically the thesis in a couple. You're seeing, here's the points up here, little six little points. Um, I got one chair for the two of you. Uh, here's, here's my thesis. The most popular songs in contemporary worship music have an over-realized eschatology. The most popular songs in contemporary worship music have an over-realized eschatology. I'll, I'll have to prove that. Why should we fix that and how can we fix that? That's where we're at. That's what we're talking about. What does, it, what does it mean it has an overrealized eschatology? Why should we fix that? How can we fix that? All right. This first part, I have, I have five pieces of paper in an outline form in front of me. You know how hard it is to condense 250 pages? Hard. That's how hard it is. Uh, if I spend 10 minutes on each of these pages, the math, I think, works. 
Um, I did go to seminary, though, so I'm not great at math. So um, help me with that. Uh, first, uh, foundational philosophical arguments. Okay? First, um, this is an insight from um, an, a, um, a philosopher who deals with a lot of aesthetics named Nicholas Waltersdorf, who argues that all art projects a world. All art, what is art doing? It projects a world. If you're like super um, philosophical, this is a great time to listen. If you're like, what does this have to do with Sunday morning? Give me about 10 minutes to land that plane, okay? All art projects a world. It's easy to think about that in terms of like C.S. Lewis and Narnia, right? There's like a world that he's projecting in that story. Or J.R.R. Tolkien, like there's a world of Middle Earth. Every piece of art has a world that it projects. That's Waltersdorf's argument. It's very interesting. He argues it really well. There's a couple books. If you're interested in a bibliography, I printed out um, 10 copies of like a one-page bibliography um, that, that I could pass out if you're interested, come talk to me. All art projects a world. Therefore, liturgical art, which is art that happens in worship services, projects the kingdom. That's point two. All art projects a world. Liturgical art projects the world of the kingdom. Third, final sort of philosophical foundation. Therefore, evangelical liturgical art, which is us, what type of kingdom should our liturgical art project? It's the world of, an, 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 it's the world of Christ's kingdom, which is an inaugurated eschatology. It's Christ's accomplished but not fully realized kingdom. You know, so this, the easy shorthand way to talk about this is the already and the not yet. And we'll be filling out those categories, but for those of you who kind of have some of that already, that, that's where it's going. That Christ has already established his kingdom. It's, he's accomplished his kingdom, but it's not fully realized. It's like D-Day happened. The victory has been, you know, accomplished, but it's not V-Day, which is when the victory was, you know, finalized. Does that make sense? That's where we're at. We're in between these two things. Inaugurated, it started. Eschatology, the end. The end has started, but it's not fully realized. Okay, so here we go. Now, what is inaugurated eschatology? I've already started there. Here it is. The doctrine of inaugurated eschatology describes the kingdom of God as having already begun because of the first coming of Jesus Christ. It's already begun. But it has not yet been consummated because believers are awaiting the second coming. We're between two comings. Jesus came and accomplished the, the started the kingdom, but it's not like fully realized. It's not fully here yet. Okay, so let, let me just talk about inaugurated eschatology, still on point two. Let me just kind of give you some biblical categories to back up that sort of thing that we feel in our hearts. In the Old Testament, my buddy Josh is in the back. I, I shudder to talk about the Old Testament in front of somebody so knowledgeable, but here we go. The Old Testament talked about a coming day. That's Joel 2.32. The Old Testament talked about a coming person, Genesis 3.15, and a bunch of other places. The Old Testament talked about a coming spirit in Joel 2, 28 and 29, and a coming covenant in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. The Old Testament talked about these things. It's coming. It's coming. There's a coming day, a coming person, a coming spirit, a, com a coming covenant. And at the same time, the Israelites were also celebrating a lot of the Lord's past faithfulness, weren't they? You know, the Israelites were, f were feasting to celebrate God's past faithfulness, says Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is a great picture of this. Old Testament view of inaugurated eschatology. Psalm 41 through 10, it's, they're celebrating God's past faithfulness. And verses 11 through 17, they're, they're fasting in expectation of God's future provision. They're feasting to celebrate God's past. Well, he's done this for us. And then fasting to be like, and we're waiting for the, for the, for the thing, right? So Old Testament believers had this, we are, just imagine if you're an Israelite walking out, um, so helped by 
Aaron's talk on Exodus 33. They're walking through the Red Sea. They've been delivered, right? There can be miracles if you believe. <laughs> Though faith is small, it's hard to kill. Do you notice no sequel to that movie? That movie stopped at a really great moment. Moses is walking down Ten Commandments. The sequel of that would have been rough. <laughs> mm. Mm. Old Testament. Now, in the, in the New Testament comes, and a lot of these things are accomplished, but they're not consummated. It's not, we're still waiting. So here's some things. Let me, let me just kind of uh, use um, some the ways the New, the New Testament describes believers, okay? So a New Testament believer is already God's child, but not yet appearing to be so. That's 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children, but what we are has not yet appeared. Oh, it, so, oh see, it's both. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 5.17 and Romans 8.13 say that we're already a new creation, but we still must put to death the misdeeds of the body. We're caught in between these two realities. Uh, this is Colossians 1.13 and Romans 12.2 says, We've already been delivered and transferred from the kingdom of darkness, but we're not yet done resisting conformity to the, this world, this age. We've been delivered from it, but don't be conformed to it. We're not done resisting. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, We're already born anew, but we haven't received the inheritance. We're caught. Um, John 10, verses 28 through 29. Uh, we are already in Christ. We cannot be snatched from his hand or his father's hand, but we're not yet finished our race. Uh, Colossians 3, 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, 14. We've already been raised with Christ, but we haven't been finally raised. Ephesians 2, 6, Revelation 3, 21. We're already seated in the heavenly places, but we're not yet finally seated on Christ's throne. We're caught in between these two things. This is, the, this is inaugurated eschatology. Now, that's where it is in the Bible. So, Historically, over the past half century, um, I'm going to stretch that out now, uh, since about the, the mid-1940s, over the past half century, inaugurated eschatology has become the preferred term for evangelical thinkers to use when they're attempting to be faithful to what the Bible teaches about these end times. One of the most interesting books that, that I think every evangelical should read would be Carl F.H. Henry, The Uneasy Conscience of uh, Fundamentalism, where he talks about this. He talks about how, um, well, he doesn't use the term inaugurated eschatology, but it, it's all throughout his book. And later, another evangelical theologian, George Ladd from Fuller Seminary, um, dove into it. That sentence was 11 pages in my dissertation. There it is. I said it's rejoicing. Uh, Inaugurated eschatology historically in the evangelical movement united, it joined two wings of evangelicalism that did not get along together before, this, before we started talking about it in this way. Dispensationalists, you know, dispensationalists and amillennialists, so dispensationalists think um, Dallas Theological Seminary and amillennialists think Westminster um, so uh, those two schools um, did not get along together, did not partner together. So inaugurated at eschatology serves as a uniquely unifying doctrine for the evangelical movement. Different strands of Protestantism have historically agreed on key doctrine, like justification by faith, the inerrancy of the Bible, like the fundamentalist sort of movement especially. However, the articulation and the joint endorsement of inaugurated eschatology may have created, see, when you write a dissertation, you have to use like may have or might or could seem to have led to, but I'll just say it. This did it. <laughs> this did it. Made the space, the, the paradigm that has enabled the wide level of cooperation within contemporary evangelicalism. Without inaugurated eschatology, without that work, we don't have the gospel coalition. We don't have together for the gospel. We don't have a lot of the movements that, of the places that we sort of swim in. They're, 
you know, the fact that Tim Keller from the PCA church, oh, I'll, I'll go even, even harder than that. Um, uh, Tom Schreiner, Baptist theo, um, theologian, his New Testament theology uh, has a whole chapter on inaugurated eschatology. And then um, um, Beale, Greg Beale at Westminster, his New Testament theology has inaugurated eschatology as its main driving force. The fact that you'd have a Baptist and a Presbyterian um, using this as their shared paradigm, there's so much overlap because of that, has enabled this sort of, of cooperation within evangelicalism to really happen. It's a big deal. Okay, that's points one and two. Three, historic American evangelical hymnody. How has historic American evangelical hymnody expressed the kingdom? Short answer is with rich and nuanced categories. It's done a really good job of saying both already and not yet. And here I'm drawing on the work of a, of a, um, a religion scholar, Stephen Marini, who's done all sorts of really great surveys of publications of um, hymn books in America. First one, 19, uh, sorry, 1737. He's got several different essays. Some of them trace um, 1737 to the pre-Civil War era. Another one does like 1780 um, through uh, 1960, I believe. The, so the publication of, of him, hymn books. And then he's done studies on which hymns are published in the most hymn books. To like, oh, so these are probably the ones that people are singing. He's done some really great work on that. So I went through his list and dug out some work, kind of building on, um, if you know the scholar at Duke, Lester Ruth, who sort of surveyed um, um, some of those categories too. But I used um, the categories of inaugurated eschatology to survey some of these hymns. And I used three lenses. This, okay, now we're starting to get helpful for you. Three lenses, ready? Okay, here's, I have to start with a hard word, but spatiality. With a T. Spatiality, which means, how does this song talk about location? How does this song talk about location? It's a weird question, but just, we'll get to it in a second. We'll, we'll get to it way too much in a second. Um, chronology. How does this song talk about time? What things are happening in the past? What things are happening now? What things will happen in the future? That's a good lens to try to help us figure out the, a song's eschatology, if that makes sense. And then third, um, affection. Yes, I'm the worship pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, so my pastor loves Jonathan Edwards. I gotta use uh, the affections. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So um, we're going to use these three lenses to study older hymns and how do they talk about location? How do they talk about time? How do they talk about what believers feel? Get some categories and that's going to give us like a backdrop. And then we're going to talk about um, CCLI contemporary worship songs and we're going to so the, the historic perspective is going to help us to see like what's going on here, what's going on there. Does that make sense? Pers uh, some perspective. Okay. So how has it done this? With rich and nuanced categories. Spatiality. Um, uh, talking about spatiality, um, well, let me just find a couple quotes. I have a lot of quotes that I'm just kind of picking from. Here's an Isaac Watts hymn called, Come We That Love the Lord. Talking about spatiality. The men of grace have found glory begun below. Celestial fruits on earthly ground from faith and hope may grow. But when you read Watts that quickly, it kind of goes by, doesn't it? Okay, here it goes. The men of grace have found glory begun below. So glory, just like I'm, just, I'm now like arcing what Watts wrote. Glory has begun below. Celestial fruits, like so the joys of heaven, the, the finished, consummated um, a kingdom, celestial fruits 
on earthly ground from faith and hope may grow. So are you, are you tracking that? There's an, there's an already to it. The glory has begun below, but the fruits that are growing here are really celestial. There's like this really rich, look at that back and forth. There's a lot of language um, of a journey or um, just think like Pilgrim's Progress. That's probably the easiest metaphor. A lot of hymns will talk about, I'm here and I'm, I'm traveling through life and then I'm going to that place. Like, um, let's see, what would be a good example of that? How about, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand. Uh, Samuel Stennett's hymn. Filled with delight, my raptured soul can, no, can here no longer stay. Though Jordan's waves around me roll, fearless I'd launch away. So there's this sense of, I'm here in this broken place, this dark uh, uh, um, waves, difficulty, dangers all around. But I'm, I'm traveling. There's a lot of, I'm traveling to this other place. Um, let me go to uh, chronology is my, is my second theme. This is, uh, oh, I love this old hymn. This is the hymn, Jesus is coming to earth again. What if it were today? <laughs> uh, one of my grandma's favorites. Whenever you would say, whenever we start talking about the Lord, she, she got into her late 90s and memories would like really disappear. And whenever she would start talking about the Lord, she would like perk up and she'd be like, he's coming back, you know? And be like, that's right, Grammy, that's right. And she, she would always say, and when I say always, I mean several times an hour late in her life. How about today? How about today? How about today? So here's, this is, uh, here's the hymn. Satan's dominion will soon be o'er. Oh, that it were today. Sorrow and sighing shall be no more. Oh, that it were today. Then the dead in Christ arise, cut up to meet him in the skies. When shall these glories meet our eyes? What if it were today? killer. Okay, or the chronology. So that's, there's the sense of we're walking through Satan's dominion, sorrow and sighing is here, people are dead, but then they will be, when Christ returns, they'll be, dominion will be over, sorrow and sighing will be no more, the dead will rise. Another sort of example of chronology language, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be, right? Or, and then maybe one, I'll do one from affection here. Uh, this, is the, this is the Watts um, hymn, uh, When I Can Read My Title Clear. By the way, you know he wrote a lot of songs, right? A lot of songs. How many people have sung, When I Can Read My Title Clear? I see that hand. Good, good. Well, here, here's the, I mean, we're missing stuff, guys. Like, feel free to, uh, to dig in. Here's, um, there I shall bathe my weary soul in seas of heavenly rest and not a wave of trouble roll across my peaceful breast. So the, you got emotional categories here, trouble and rest, spatialities, uh, categories here, earth and heaven. By relating earth's trouble and heaven's rest, Watts gives weight to both the already and the not yet of inaugurated eschatology. Now, th um, this isn't just old hymns. A lot of even contemporary songs up until a certain date still have this. If you think about um, um, Andre Crouch's song, Soon and Very Soon We Are Going to See the King. Or, you know, this was Song of the Year, maybe 1984. It's a Sandy Patty song, so, you know, forgive me. If you don't know who that is, ask your grandparents. We shall behold him. We shall behold him. Right? And I mean, even if you think about it, what was the name of the very, uh, arguable, the very first um, publishing company for contemporary worship? What was it? So it starts with an M. Maranatha. What's Maranatha mean? Okay. So like that, just like think about that. The name of the entire um, song label, Maranatha Music. Though differing eras in evangelical hymnody have emphasized different aspects of the already and the not yet, they have constantly done so. The songs of the late 18th and early 19th centuries 
emphasize metaphors of place, where believers traveled from the difficulties of earth to the joys of heaven. Later hymns emphasized metaphors of chronology, where believers looked to an appointed day for Christ to take believers away. Still later congregational songs from the 20th century highlighted metaphors of affection, which emphasized the experience that believers will have when encountering the returning Christ. While these distinctions are interesting, it seems that believers from each of these eras of hymnody would have recognized their own experience in other time periods. Congregants draw, drawing encouragement from their current experience from the future reality of we shall behold him have a lot in common with those singing Watts's when I can read my title clear. Watts's Come We That Love the Lord and Andre Crouch's Soon and Very Soon have the same themes. Watts writes, there we shall see his face. Crouch echoes, soon and very soon we are going to see the king. Watts replies, and never, never sin. There from rivers of grace drink endless pleasures in. Crouch summarizes, no more crying there, no more dying there. We are going to see the king. A seeming fraternity of belief. This is what you have to write when you're doing a dissertation. A seeming fraternity of belief around these themes stands in contrast with the lyrical content of contemporary worship music. The shared language of discussing the already and the not yet across four distinct periods of an evangelical congregational song suddenly disappears and believers are left behind. I got one joke in the entire dissertation, that was it. <laughs> now how do CCLI songs express the kingdom? Here's the eschatology of CCLI, point four. Okay, we're doing okay on time. Um, for this, I surveyed the top 25 CCLI songs from each, um, uh, from the year 2000 to the year 2015. That, those of you who know this, um, that list gets released every six months. Is it three times a year now? It used to be twice a year. I think maybe it might be even more now. But it's a, um, so they released 25 songs and when you combine 15 years of survey, um, there's actually 83 songs that I, that I surveyed. 83 songs. Does everybody understand how I got 83? Because like sometimes it would stay. Like, Lord, I lift your name on high was there for a long time. <laughs> Whoo, still there. You're like turning the pages like, man, we were on that. <laughs> okay. Okay, so now... So I, I pulled all of those lyrics, you know, I did just what you would, I, what I did, here's, this would be my practical thing for you. Do I have enough time to do this? I can do this. Um, I would encourage you to do this with your own church. I would encourage you to get all of the lyrics that your church has sung in the last three years. Make a list of all of the songs that you've sung in the last three years and make one enormo word document that has all of those lyrics in it and read through them with some different lenses on. Here's three that I, that I used. You can figure out some different ones as well. But I think this is, gonna be, this is gonna be helpful for you. Like when we do theological evaluations of songs, we kind of like stop at the, the no heresy rule, which is good. Let's just say no heresy is a great rule. but it might not be a broad enough paradigm for the sort of health we want in our churches. Think about the songs that we're singing, like, um, like a diet of food. A lot of other um, speakers or thinkers have used this analogy. Zach Hicks' new book, The Worship Pastor, required reading for everybody in this room. It's so good. I'm, I'm supposed to write a book review for it. I got this email. Could you uh, read this and turn a book review around for us in two weeks? I was like, I'd love to. Please send me a free copy of that book. I'm like four weeks, I haven't finished reading it. I can't read it fast. It's like, oh boy, okay. So anyway, that's, a, that's on the side. He has a chapter called The Worship, uh, Worship Pastor as Theological Dietitian. So think about what are we feeding our people? It's not just enough to say, no poison in the food. Good idea. <laughs> I, am, I am against poison. I'm against heresy. But we need some food groups here. We, uh, we need to think through what we're feeding our people, okay? So I, I would encourage you to do that. So let me just talk about if all you sang 
from the year 2000 to the year 2015 were only the top 25 songs, if that's all you sang, let me tell you what you would have found would be true at your church. Now you're going to say, that's not true at my church, which is, of course, of course it's not. But I'm using this as as an example of surveying this with these three lenses. How does it talk about place? How does it talk about time? How does it talk about feeling? Use these with that list. And I'll I'll just show you kind of how I did that and and, uh, encourage you on that. Okay, spatiality. With um, spatiality, there's a lot of here and not a lot of on, on route. There's nothing, there's very, very little going somewhere else. In the songs of the top 25 CCLI, there's a lot of, it's right here. This is it. Right? So, um, here's a a lyric. Now, I mean, none of these songs are going to be wrong to sing. But when it's all that you sing, you're going to, hopefully you're going to feel, especially after hearing some of those other hymns, you're going to feel like, oh, not every song can say everything, but like, what's the total effect of what's happening here? Here's a great Jason Ingram lyric. You are here, you are here, in your presence I'm made whole. God is here. Um, um, Chronology. Let's move to chronology. And I have about, I mean, you can think of them yourself. Like, what's happening right here? Just think about the songs that your church sings. There's a lot of, like, God is here. He's right with us right now. So well, now chronology, right now. Okay? Um, oh, okay, here's, here's an ex- interesting example. You know the, uh, Chris Tomlin put the chorus to Amazing Grace, right? You know, my chains are gone. Are you, right? Are you with me? Is it okay if I sing copyrighted songs? I know they're recording. For everybody who's listening to the MP3 right now, hi, Mom. <laughs> I, um, okay, so, but think about, think about the final chorus of the, of the um, Newton hymn, The Earth Will Soon Dissolve Like Snow. Okay, you're like, okay, well, that sounds weird in, in CCLI language, but there you are singing it. Uh, um, uh, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below, will be forever mine. And then what does Tomlin do? You are forever mine. Did you see the change? Newton says, God will be forever mine. And Tomlin, in the next line, you are. It's now. Not will be, it's, it's now. The, you know, I mean, it's not, that's not like immoral, but it misses a chance to say something that, that Newton wanted to say, right? Um, what's the future going to be like according to CCLI? Pretty much like what it is right now, actually. Um, when he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, 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 okay, here you go. Oh, I feel like dancing. It's foolishness, I know. But when the world has seen the light, They'll dance with joy like we're dancing right now. Can I just think about that? <laughs> what sort of dancing have you seen during that lyric being sung? <laughs> no, the world is going to be so happy. How happy are they going to be? This happy. <laughs> I've been in worship services where like, I hope they're dancing better than that. I mean, <laughs> I mean I've been in worship services where the lights went off because the motion detector didn't get triggered for an hour. Like, <laughs> So, okay, so, but, but it's described, what will heaven be like? You, you can think about this. What will heaven be like? It'll be like right now, actually. It'll be like right now. What we're doing right now is heaven. Rut row. Because, um, well, we'll get to that. Okay, what about affections? What sort of emotions are being experienced by believers in CCLI music? Well, love and joy, a lot. We're loving God. We're very happy. A second, uh, next category, confidence. A lot of confidence being expressed. You know, I'll stand, arms high, heart up, 
abandoned. I mean, I don't even know where I left it. I mean, I got in my car. I had my, I had my heart with me. And I was like, there you go, boy. And then before it knew, I closed that door. I peeled out of there. I left my heart like a long way away. Anybody? Uh, okay, nobody. I got that. Okay. We've abandoned our heart. There's such confidence about like how we're feeling about our commitment to God feels amazing right now. Not, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Uh, not um, tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. None of that. No, this is like from the inside out. My heart cries out. Like, I mean, think about what that just said. Now, again, singing that song by itself is not an uh, immoral act. You know, I don't think, you know, I don't think Nadab and Abihu would get struck down for singing, you know, from the inside out. But the, the total effect of what that does Think about what that does. Um, okay, also, um, okay, when it talks about the affections of the, the not yet, it'll get mentioned and then it'll get, like, it'll get like bulldozed over. Higher than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave, constant in the tri- trial and the change, one thing remains, one thing remains, your love, your love, your love will never change. Okay, so... This is one of, the, this is one of the, the most nuanced ones in the CCL, I think, because it says that I'm facing mountains. At least you got like that, it, you know, but higher than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave. So it kind of admits the grave does have power, but I mean, it, it can't even say that in a sentence by itself. It has stronger than the power of the grave. Constant in the trial and the change. So it mentions trials, it mentions change, but before it even gets there, it's like constant. Does that, does that make sense? So in the category of the already aspect of the kingdom, the core repertory, that's the, the academic term for it, the, this uh, group of most sung songs that we study in order to understand the entire movement, that's core repertory includes frequent and involved descriptions of God's current reign, Christ's substitutionary work, um, his resurrection, the believer's responses of passionate praise, positive emotions, and commitment. Spatiality language in this category uh, portrays the present world as the location of worship. What's happening here? Worship. That's what's happening here. Chronology language in this category portrays the present world as the era of reign and rescue for God and the era of praise for believers. In the category of the not yet, the core repertory includes rare and brief descriptions of brokenness in the external world and weakness internal to the believer. Spatial language from this category hinted that God's current hiddenness can be overcome by evoking his greater presence or by believers becoming more aware. Chronological language, the future era is primarily described as an epoch when the current experience of believers will continue without pause. Um, And there's a really good, um, if this is uh, interesting to you, there's a really great book by Ryan Lister called um, The Presence of God. Is that just what it's called? It's called The Presence of God. And he talks about two different categories or... um, a teleological ends of God's presence, that God's presence has a, a redemptive aspect and an eschatological um, aspect to it. And basically, um, CCLI just says it's the eschatological aspect. It doesn't have the redemptive. If you understand that paragraph, come introduce yourself to me afterwards because I'm not sure I did, but um, it's great. Uh, several themes from the not yet category of inaugurated eschatology often referred to in historic evangelical hymnody have disappeared. Death, where death only gets referred to as Christ's death. Uh, the only time that it's hinted at is the um, 10,000 Reasons song. On that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, still, I'll continue singing, right? Like, I'll keep doing what I'm doing now. Um, death, revival, uh, confession of sin, anxiety, pilgrimage to a better location, almost completely disappear. 
Now, why the change? Oh, I'm down to 20. Okay. Uh, why the change? Uh, really briefly, um, commercialism. We're selling stuff. It's hard to sell stuff when the stuff says, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to sell John the Baptist record. One greater than me is coming. Like, oh, I'll just wait for that one then. You know, like, it's, it's hard to sell that. <laughs> Juvenilization. The people who are writing our songs are younger and younger and younger. So Isaac Watts is writing that as an older pastor, and Fanny Crosby is writing her hymns into her what age, and what's the average age of the top 25 songs. I didn't do the work on that. That'll be somebody else's work, but there's a juvenilization. Thomas Bergler's work is, is helpful there. There's a couple other things. Um, there's a particular um, branch of, of um, Pentecostalism that has a more realized um, eschatology that um, is probably um, a disproportionate contributor to some of those things. Okay, now let's talk about why change. Are there any dangers to what we're talking about right now? Uh, briefly, yes. Um, here's three dangers of neglecting the already aspect of inaugurated eschatology. We have to have already and not yet. Now, what I, what I was just talking about was that CCLI has, does not have hardly any not yet. But what about the other side? What if we didn't have already language? Here's three dangers of neglecting the already. Uh, a fundamentalist retreat from culture. We, t we would tend to just um, um, uh, put, you know, pull our wagons together and not really engage and try to create our own little thing if we don't have enough sense that, that God is already at work in our world, then we just sort of like quick, like let's get all of our own stuff together, we retreat. Second, pessimism rather than assurance. A worship service should be a means of grace that encourages believers in their journey toward heaven. In particular, and when I say heaven, I don't mean like clouds, platonic, I'm from Grand Rapids. I'll explain that later if you want to come ask me afterwards. Okay. In particular, services should promote confidence in the promises of God, both in terms of their certainty and in terms of their personalization in the believer's life. So that God's promises to me about the future are certain and they're for me. That's a huge part of what, of what we're, we're trying to do. This confidence is referred to often as assurance. And when we don't talk about um, God's activity like it's currently happening, we get pessimism rather than assurance in our churches. And then a third, thanklessness. Believers who think that God's activity is waiting for the future will be oblivious to the many ways God's at work right now. Because God's ongoing activity has always been a source of encouragement for believers, neglecting God's current work hurts us. Believers um, whose eschatology is strictly defined or primarily interested in God's activity in the future will be unaware of the many ways God's active now. This lack of awareness can, cannot help but make believers unthankful. Do you, like, do you know that? Like, God's at work now, in 10,000 ways in your life that you don't even know. You know, like, do I have time to preach? Uh, tight. Um, if you knew the strength of the enemy that was trying to destroy your faith, if you knew the, the, the forces that in the world that were at work to undermine your confidence in the Lord, then you would be more thankful and more grateful for the fact that you're still a believer now shows the om, omnip, omnipotent power of a God who's caring for us. Okay, there you go. Uh, dangers of neglecting the not yet. This is a little bit more central to what we're talking about. Um, dangers of neglecting. We're, we create false expectations in believers. We're creating false expectations in believers. Services with an over-realized eschatology tragically downplay the realities of this still fallen world. Doubt, disappointment, ongoing sin. Well, I'll just give you those three. 
doubt, disappointment, ongoing sin. When evangelical worship services imply that believers experience complete victory now, the church is creating expectations it cannot meet. It's preparing its people for disappointment. If we just flat out are. I mean, the, the college students that I would work with, um, um, and I heard Kevin Twitt talk about this one time. Our songs are, are just making promise, you know, they're writing checks that we can't keep. Like, oh, you, how, you know, how committed do you feel to the Lord right now? Because according to that song that you just sang, and on that Sunday morning, you were feeling like, you know, 12 out of 10. And now on Monday, you're like, I, boy, I, what of two things is wrong? Either I'm, there's something wrong with me, because my, my commitment kind of goes like this, like prone, prone to wander. My commitment kind of goes like this. And according to the songs, it kind of goes like this. So either there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with the faith. It creates false expectations for believers. Secondly, it avoids authentic dealings with sickness, disability, and death. Believers cannot be helped by contemporary worship songs. This is a quote from Carl Truman in a great First Things article called Tragic Worship. Um, that assert triumph over death while never giving death its due. The tomb is certainly empty, but we're not sure why it was ever occupied in the first place. The tomb is the last enemy. I mean, is there any uh, place in all of Christendom to hear more foolishness than at our funerals? Like you go to a funeral, and I'm, I'm a pastor, so, I mean, you, people are grieving, so you can't just, like, jump up and, like, <laughs> by the way, that's not true, what she just said. You, you can't say that. But we have lost our ability to think about and to talk about death. Our, our culture is spending trillions of dollars every year to like convince us that it doesn't happen. And so, okay, and then third, an impoverished emotional life. Dangers of neglecting the not yet create false expectations. We avoid authentic dealings and we create an impoverished emotional life. What can we do to help? 13 minutes, Lord, help me. What can we do to help? I'm going to use it as a... Uh, just an illustration from 2 Kings 4, verses 40 to 41. Um, do you remember the, the time when Elisha, there's a famine, and the, the sons of the prophets are making some stew, and like a strange um, root gets put into the stew, and one of the... Uh, anybody know the story? Anybody? Okay. All right. Ask me about it later. So anyway, a poisonous root gets put into the stew, and there's... And the, the quote is, oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. Our stew's been poisoned. And what Elisha says, he says, then, then bring more flour. That's how he decides to answer. You can't get the poison out, but what you do is you put substantial stuff in, is the uh, analogy. So how we, you can't get some of this out. And it's not even a matter of like talking about this, like, you know, don't talk about the the greatness of God's already. We, it's not that we want to stop talking about that, but we just need to talk about it. Got to substantiate it. Okay, so we need to bolster the already. Here's four realities that our church services should talk about to bolster the already. God's eternally worthy character. God's character already. We need to highlight how eternally worthy that is. Second, God's past glorious accomplishments. Third, the current activity of the Holy Spirit. And the future promises that God has given to believers. Let's just say those again quickly. God's eternally worthy character. God's past glorious accomplishments current activity of the Holy Spirit, the future promises God has given to believers, we should celebrate those four realities in our service in order to embrace the already. And then we should bolster the not yet. These are ways in which the, um, the not yet aspect of God's kingdom can be portrayed in our services. So 
confession of sin. As, you know, we, we talk about these things that have like disappeared out of our services. I think, you know, it's good to like recognize each of these like different like cans of Coke that have disappeared. But this is sort of like the big like plastic rings that it all fits into. Why is confession of sin disappeared? Well, we have an over-realized eschatology. When sin's been completely eradicated, who needs to confess it? But when we're like, I'm still a sinful person, then you walk into a service that has confession of sin, you're like, I am so glad to have some words to say today. Um, confession of sin, lament over the brokenness of the world. You don't lament over a world that's not broken. So if, the, if this is it, if this is the fullness of the kingdom right now, why would we ever lament? Um, little he- little heavier of a theme, but I encourage you to dig around on it. Uh, Luther's Theology of the Cross. Martin Luther's um, Heidelberg Disputation of 1518. Since God's um, revealing of, his, of himself is seen in the meekness of the incarnation and in the humiliation of the cross. We, we have to, we have to um, celebrate those parts of who he is and not just assume and celebrate God in categories that we normally naturally have ourselves. We, have, we tend to think about God in idolatrous ways. We tend to take our own categories. I'm weak. I wish I was strong. Therefore, God must be super strong. He must be omnipotent. I am limited. I want... Uh, I wish I were bigger. God must be infinite. And when we think those ways, it's called theology of glory, we miss some of the ways that God has revealed himself in ways that like surprise us. Wait, like a, a, a baby came? He came as a, as a baby? Like, oh, oh, he conquered death by dying? I would not have guessed that. We need to highlight the ways that God and, and Luther's uh, theology of the cross is a good way to like get some of those categories. Commend it to you if you want to take a look at that. Um, the Maranatha prayer, the prayer asking Jesus to come again, has disappeared out of our contemporary worship services. Even our old, you know, if you think about your hymns, classic hymn structure, right? Verse 1, God's glory and majesty. Verse 2, nature. You know, a birds, twinkling stars, you know, maybe pantheism. You're like, what's going on there? <laughs> Verse 3, the cross verse, right? Verse 4, the second coming, when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamations, right? There we are. That's verse 4. Now think about that structure on Lord, I lift your name on high. You came, heaven to earth, show the way. Earth to the cross, debt to pay, cross to the grave, grave to the skies. Now, I mean, if you read historic hymnody, you're ready for like, from the skies back to the, no. That's gone. You just get from the grave to the skies. Lord, I lift your name on high. That's it. That's all. Man, that's it. We lost it. We lost it. Or we weren't thinking about it or because we controlled the White House. It felt like we didn't need him to come back or something happened. But <laughs> Maranatha Prayer is going to be coming back real soon. Okay, so here's, here's four resources. Last, uh, last couple minutes, I'll get you out on time. Four resources. Um, the Psalms. The Psal- when you read the Psalms, you can't help, you know, like get the Psalms into your heart so you can feel their rhythms. Because then you'll feel the already, like, you know, Lord, you are always with me. And the not yet. David's like, where are you right now? You're like, hey, man, like a page ago, he was right there for you. Like, what did that happen? That's what it feels like. How does it feel to be living during inaugurated eschatology? Disorientating. That's how it feels. Do you, anybody else feel that with me? It feels disorienting. And when you read the Psalms, you're like, this guy's schizophrenic. Oh, that's how it's supposed to feel. Okay, good. Um, the Psalms. Um, I heard uh, author Brett Lott talk about the Bible in this way, and I think it's a good way to talk about the Psalms. Uh, when you go to Comic-Con, Anybody go to Comic-Con? Okay. <laughs> that, was a vi- that was not a raised hand. That was like a fin. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty great. When you go to Comic-Con, people have worlds that they love. And they dress up as characters that they identify with. Okay? We should cosplay 
the Psalms. We should like so, like the way that, that you know, like that guy, I think he was dressed up like Jabba the Hutt. It's hard to tell, but he loves Star Wars. He's seen all the movies so many times and owns and the behind the scenes. And now when he gets together with his friends, he's dressed up as a guy. He just wants to be a part of that world. That's what we should be doing with the Bible. We should be doing that with the Psalms. We should be so like, oh, I'm, I'm having a Sons of Korah morning today. I'm having an Ethan, Ethan the Ezraite kind of day today. Woo! I am I'm putting my, you know, putting out your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Well, that's, well, that feels pertinent in November 2016. Cosplay the Psalms. Get them into our, into our hearts. Okay, second, the historic ordo. Like the, the order of service from, from liturgical um, that's, that's been passed down through us, um, gives us inaugurated eschatology. It's built in. Adoration, already. Confession, not yet. Thanksgiving, already. Supplication, not yet. You got, it's a two-step. It's a right foot, left foot rhythm that's built into there. Now, there, there could be some pastoral reasons that you would not want to use a more liturgical order. That would be if you had a lot of, of um, maybe people that got saved out of a very liturgical background and for you to trig, you know, for you to put up some of those uh, language would just kind of like confuse them more than help them. But consider, uh, the, um, consider that as, as a pastoral resource. Similarly, the liturgical calendar. I know where I am. I know I'm at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. But you'll notice that in Protestantism, we celebrate the already moments of the calendar. We do Christmas. You got to sing in Christmas tree, guys. Whew. Wow. We do Easter, but we don't do Advent. So Advent is the not yet. Christmas is the already. Lent is the not yet. Easter is the already. And the, that rhythm back and forth helps us. Now, again, there would be pastoral reasons to do that and pastoral reasons to not do that. But, but consider it, be wise. And then fourth, uh, the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance already. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, not yet. Here's a, a Jamie Smith quote from Desiring the Kingdom. The Lord's Supper should be experienced as a kind of sanctified letdown. Every week that we celebrate is another week that the kingdom and its feast have not yet fully arrived. We're celebrating it. It's a sanctified letdown. Oh, okay. Why are we passing out, why are we passing out tiny crackers and little bits of juice? Do this in remembrance of drinking. It's so small. You know, why are we passing that out? Because it's not the feast. All we're doing in our services, really, we can't promise people a feast. We're serving appetizers. That's what we're doing. We're doing choir rehearsal for the big throne pageant. We're doing appetizers for the final feast. Let me pray for us, and then I'll send this out. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that um, because of who you are and because of what you've done, these glorious realities are ours. We thank you that we are completely forgiven. We've been set free from the power of sin. We've been set free from the, from the penalty of sin. And yet, Lord, we just recognize in our own hearts that we haven't been freed from the presence of sin. It's still with us. And so I pray that you would help us to use these not yet realities in our lives as opportunities to draw closer to you. May each time that we um, confess sin, may, may our sin drive us towards our Savior. May our laments drive us towards a God who provides for us and who cares for us and who rules the world. May, may all of our weaknesses uh, push us towards a strong God. Lord, Lord, help us and help us to minister in, a, in an authentic way for our people that doesn't celebrate things that aren't ours yet. Help us to recognize the times. Help us to be wise about the days in which we're ministering 
And uh, Lord, be with my friends. Thank you for their attention. I pray that you would um, give us an inordinate capacity in these full days of learning and hearing so much. Lord, help us take good notes and, and grab and latch on to the things that you would have for us, Lord. And, and um, well, also thank you for the hundreds of people that are back at our churches right now and working for your kingdom so that we can be here learning. We love you most of all, Lord Jesus. We don't want to go anywhere if you don't go with us. So, so drive us closer to yourself. In your name we pray. Amen.